0: I am so proud of y'all for being here today. Just need to say that. Don't take it for granted on the Sunday after Christmas that you are here. I don't take it for granted that it was easy for you to be here. You might have had to travel a long way last night or maybe even early this morning. And yet here you are. Most of you in your Sunday best, which is better than I am. Some of us are still sporting our vacation beards. Maybe you came screeching in. I always like the folks who show up on the Sunday after Christmas because I know they want the real stuff. They are hardcore. I can go ahead and preach all the sermon that I wanted to preach. I don't have to leave anything on the cutting room floor. We can go verse by verse. We got all day. You showed up on the Sunday after Christmas. You're in for it. So make yourself comfortable. We'll be here a little while. I hope you won't mind. Uh, we, we, we are going to do a little in-depth. We're going to be going into the epistle lesson for today, the reading that we heard from Ephesians. And I bet even as hardcore as you are, it's already slipped out of some of your minds. You heard it, you liked it, you thought those are pleasant words, and now you cannot remember for the life of you what it is that Paul had to say to the Ephesians. So don't worry, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. I'll give you a a few snippets of what we already read so you can get it. I hope you won't mind uh, that I'm reading them from my phone this morning. And uh, that's actually where my sermon notes are. That's a little bit of a, again, the after effects of the, the time we've spent away the, the vacation time. You might notice that actually I usually read the Bible lesson from my phone. I never really meant to become a smartphone Bible reader. There's a part of me, the romantic part of me, that, uh, that still really loves the vision of myself walking around with a leather-bound Bible. I've got one in my office that I dearly love. I love to read from it. It's perfect size in my hand. If I had my druthers, that's what I would uh, read from. Whenever I pull out my phone to read from the Bible or keep my calendar or whatever, there's always somebody who looks at me and goes, Michael, you're such a techie. And it's not true. I'm really not. What I am is forgetful. Like incredibly forgetful, like monumentally forgetful. And specifically, I am very forgetful about the future. I'm pretty good at remembering the past. I'm remembering it, good at remembering where I was and who I was with and the details of a story or experiences in my life. I thank God have always had a decent head for remembering the Bible and what's written there. Though it didn't help me with that preacher once upon a time. Now I'm always forgetting what I'm supposed to do next. Every Thursday morning we have staff meeting here. Every Thursday morning, 9.30. And I promise you that every Thursday morning I would miss it if my phone didn't go off at 9.15 to say, staff meeting. And then again at 9.25 to say, no, go to McGowan Hall now. I remember what it was like uh, back in the dark ages when I would write things like that, staff meeting, 9.30, in a date book or a notebook planner. I know some of y'all, that works just fine for you. I wish I was you. I like the feel of pen and paper. Problem is, I'd be really good about writing those things down, and then I'd forget to check the date book, or the planner. It would just lie unopened on my desk. Or I'd leave it somewhere, more often than not. No lie, I have left date books, and diaries, and planners, and cameras, and Bibles, all over the Southeast. So when there came along a device that could replace all of those for me and that I always have with me and when I do forget it, I can have somebody call it so it makes a sound and tells me where it is or maybe somebody will even pick up and say, Michael, you left your phone here. I'm sorry, I just, for all my romantic notions of print and pen and paper, this has just proven a lot more lasting. I've never lost my phone so I haven't lost a Bible in years now. My phone has replaced all those things I used to lose all the time. Of course, I, I forgive me the digression, but you know our phones haven't always done that for us. Some of us remember. I remember when the first modern smartphone came out. It had 16 functions, and you couldn't copy and paste on it. One of the functions was that it told time. Another of those functions was that you could change the settings on the other 15 functions, It didn't do a whole lot for us. And here's the thing, the people who made those first phones, the first iPhones, the first Android phones, they worked like crazy to make those things. They gave everything that they had. They poured millions of dollars into developing phones that they knew would be obsolete in six months. I have a friend who lives out in California who told me that out in Silicon Valley, They have a doctrine, like we have doctrines in the church. Their doctrine is the doctrine of the minimum viable product. You see, everyone in Silicon Valley knew 12 years ago that if they just waited a year, they could sell a phone that would do so much more than those first phones. They knew that if they just waited, they could sell a better phone, one with copy and paste maybe. But in the technology world, everything could always be a little bit better if you just waited a little bit longer. And if you wait for everything to be everything that it can be, well, then you'll never get around to selling anything. So Silicon Valley, they have this doctrine. They call it the minimum viable product. See, you could always do a little bit more if you had time. You would always make something a little bit more amazing if you had a little bit more time, but instead what they get all these insanely talented engineers, some of the best and brightest in the world to do is they ask not what could you do, but what would be enough? What would be enough that if we sold it, people would buy it? What is the least thing we could sell that would still be worth giving everything you've got? Putting a computer in a phone is hard. So how many features would be worth it? Would be worth all the time and the money and the effort of all the best computer engineers on the plant? At some point, on some campus, some physical plant, they decided 16 features, that would be enough. (laughs) If we could just get one out that has 16 features, that would be enough that we could sell a few and make enough money that we could then make a better one and then make it a better one and then make a better one. 16 features was the minimum viable product. Anything less than that wouldn't be enough, but that would be enough. 16 features was the very least they could do that would be worth their absolute best. You see, back in 2007, 2008, the people who were making these things, they knew. They knew what was coming. They knew that those 16 features were going to become supercomputers that we carried around in our pockets, but they didn't wait until everything that they dreamed about was possible. They asked themselves, what is the least outcome that would be worth our very best effort? And then they put every bit of genius and every dollar and every piece of effort that they had to build something that was just good enough, and when that was done, they watched how people used them. And that showed them what people needed next. And they made the next minimum viable product. And then another, and here we are 12 years later and the world is totally changed if you haven't noticed. Anyway, don't mind if I read the scripture now? This is why I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, You've heard, of course, about the responsibility to give God's grace, which God gave to me for you, right? God showed me his secret plan in a revelation, as I mentioned briefly before. Earlier generations did not know this hidden plan that God has revealed to his holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. The plan is that Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body. And I am a servant of this gospel, God gave this grace to me, the least of all God's people, to preach the good news about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. This was consistent with the plan that he had from the beginning of time that he accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I ask you not to become discouraged by what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Paul? I mean, he knew, he absolutely knew as deeply as he knew his own name that God had changed the world. Paul has given everything in his life because he knows that God is going to do something astonishing. He says it right there. He says God's purpose is to show the rulers and the powers in the heavens the many varieties of his wisdom through the church. I love that line the different varieties of God's wisdom. There's one translation that substitute the word diversity in that passage. God's purpose is to show the world the diversity of God's wisdom. Paul already knows. That the church is going to be the place where Jew and Gentile and slave and free and male and female will all belong and will all be treated as if they carry equal value because each and every person in the church shows us a different variety of God's wisdom that we could not have seen in anyone else. And maybe you know. Maybe you know all the things that separated Jews and Gentiles back in Paul's day. Maybe you know all the reasons why this sounded like some wild invention when he says that God's people now includes them all. For now, all you really need to know is that Paul was Jewish and he'd once been called Saul. And when he was called Saul, he dedicated his life to being the best, most learned, most respectable Jewish leader that he could be. He had big dreams for himself and those dreams involved being a leader of his people the Jewish people, he trained all his life to be a teacher and a leader of the people he loved, one of the Pharisees, his own people, he would lead them, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm convinced that you can understand every single word that Paul says here in Ephesians, but that you can't understand what he is saying until you understand that Paul's deepest desire was to be a leader who helped his own people. The Jewish nation be a holy and faithful people and maybe you know something about that desire maybe you're from mobile maybe you love it maybe you are willing to give your life to make it the best version it can be of itself and maybe there's something that you want to change and maybe you think you're the person perfectly suited to change it because you know how things are and you also know how they could be. Maybe that's how you feel about church. Maybe you find yourself saying over and over again, this is so good, but it could be a little better. More faithful, more holy, more whatever it is that you have in mind. That's the dream that compelled Paul his entire life to help his own people be who God made them to be. And when you read other books of the Bible, like the book of Romans, you realize Paul never gave up on that dream. Paul tried to use his Jewish training, his Bible knowledge, his family background, and the hope that it would give him some credibility with his own people, with the Jewish people. Around Mobile, I've heard folks talk about those people who were born under an azalea bush during Mardi Gras that's who Paul is for his own people and you would think that gives him some credibility when he wants to lead them when he tells them good news Jesus is the one we've been waiting for but throughout his ministry what Paul discovered is that the more he tried to preach good news to the people who shared his background the more they rejected him You see, after Paul became a Christian, he still dreamed of God's holy vision. But his vision of who was in that holy people got a little bit bigger. God showed Paul that the kingdom of heaven included not only good Jewish boys like himself, good Pharisees like himself, but even included the Gentiles, the unclean, the unholy, the enemies of his people. And here in the book of Ephesians, one of Paul's very last letters, he is sitting in prison. And even though he's been given this vision of a church that embodies the great diversity of God's wisdom, Paul hasn't seen it happen yet. There's not been this great final kumbaya moment between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. They still fight with one another. They still add each other's throats. They're still wrestling for control of this Jesus movement. Paul is not the great unifier that he wanted to be. Paul, who wanted to be the leader of Jewish people, has become the preacher to the Gentiles. And he's looking back on his life and his mission, and he realizes that all he's really done is preach to Gentiles. He's in prison. He's grown old. And all he is is the preacher to the Gentiles. You remember those old t-shirts you used to see that would say something like, I went to Vegas and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. There are all kinds of variations on that. I ran a marathon. I ate a ghost pepper. I went to the Olympics and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I kind of imagine Paul there in prison wearing a shirt that says, I preached the gospel I went to jail for the gospel. I was shipwrecked and I was stoned for the gospel. And all I got out of it was some Gentiles. And that was enough. Hear it again. The voice of a prisoner who says, God gave his grace to me. The least of all God's people to preach the good news about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Paul had not seen the church become everything that God wants it to be. He'd not seen his own people fall on their knees in mass and praise Christ Jesus the Lord. He had not seen almost anything that he dreamed for, that he hoped for, that he worked for. He knows in this moment that God is going to do so much more But he also knows that he used to persecute Christians and he used to shun Gentiles and now he loves them and calls them brother and sister. And he calls that the grace of God. And that is enough. The biggest shock of Paul's ministry and his mission was discovering that the Gentiles were worth it. They were the very least thing that was worth his everything. And I know as certainly as I know my own name that God's vision for this church is vast because God's vision for the church is vast. When I read Paul saying that God's purpose is to show the world the many different varieties of his wisdom through his church, I think, well, that's us. So many churches these days build their identities around specific age groups, political affiliation, Worship styles and all kinds of other identities that keep folks away from encountering the great variety of God's wisdom. But that's not us. We are intergenerational. We find unity across three different, very different styles of worship. We have people with us of all politics and backgrounds. For more than 100 years, as people have moved in and out of this neighborhood, we have ministered to and we have ministered with the great varieties of God's wisdom. That's who we've been at the times when the results and the the fruits of it were obvious. And that's who we've been in the times when it was hard to see what good was come from giving our all. And soon the Christmas season will end with epiphany. And we will celebrate three wise Gentiles who crossed borders and badlands, who enraged a king and risked their lives and who did it all just to worship Jesus, to give him an offering and then go home. To anyone who was watching, it must have looked as though they didn't get very much for their trouble. And I wonder, what is the very least thing that God might do that would be worth everything you can do? It might be just one moment when you turn around and say, find yourself saying, I was wrong. And so you turn around and you walk in a new direction. And that might need, lead to one new and unexpected friendship. And that might lead one more soul into the kingdom. And that might be a heavenly treasure beyond your imagination. As we've been ending up this year, I've been spending a lot of time in my prayer thinking about what I call our MVP, our mission, our values, our priorities. And I like to dream big. I like to dream big about what we can do and what difference it can make and and who we can be. But maybe you're tired of big dreams. And maybe your highest hopes for yourself or your family or maybe even for God's church Maybe all those highest hopes have been disappointed again and again, and maybe they now seem so far off that you can't even bring yourself to chase them anymore. And I wonder, what would be the minimum viable product you could ask for from God? What would be the very least that God could do that would be worth your everything? What would it take for you to find yourself in Paul's position, broke and broken down and bound by circumstances and still look around and say, you know what, worth it. If you start looking for the minimum viable product rather than the most valuable position in God's purpose, you might just find an unexpected grace. You might find a Gentile sitting somewhere nearby Unclean, unholy, unfamiliar. And all that you might get to do is tell them about Jesus. And then all that might happen is that you watch the wrong sort of person fall in love with Jesus. And then there it will be the astonishing variety of God's wisdom right there in front of you, still finding what is lost and remembering what is forgotten. And when you have discovered the very least that God might do with the very best that you can give, you'll also discover this. It'll be enough. It'll be enough. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.